Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 245. This is our question and answer session from our recent seminar in Sacramento, California at Alan Thrall's gym, Untamed Strength. It's curated questions from our attendees that they submit over the course of the weekend, and then we compile them all together, and then we answer them. I'm not going to spend too much time on announcements this week. However, our tech support series is live on the YouTube channel if you want your form checked by me. Uh, send me a video, landscape, that's long ways, and uh, send it to media at barbellmedicine.com of your squat, your bench press, your deadlift, some other sort of lift you want me to review on the YouTube channel. And if it's good, I'll use it. Um, also, we still have our Australia seminar coming up January 2024. So if you're in Australia or could be in Australia or want to be in Australia and come hang out with us uh, with one of our two-day health and performance seminars, we'll be in Perth and also Sydney. We'd love to see you there. And finally, if you have a suggestion for our mailbag slash quack watch segment that uh, we are in fact working on, it's going to, it's going to happen after we get through some of these interviews that I've recorded and the seminar Q and A stuff, uh, we'll, we'll get back to those segments, but uh, yeah, you can send that to media barbellmedicine.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Enough of me talking. Let's get into more of me talking on the Sacramento Q and A, uh, from October, 2023. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming to the Sacramento Barbell Medicine Health and Performance Seminar, uh, October 2023. Uh, we appreciate it. We're doing our question and answer session. These are curated questions. Again, I had no, played no role in curating the questions. This is all Austin and Leah. So if your question got denied, it's not my fault. Bring the heat to Austin. <laughs> and if he doesn't answer, which is highly likely, bring to Leah. She will answer and feel guilty about it. So if you're really trying to... Yeah, that's right. All right, cool. Uh, and then further, if we don't get to your question or you've come up with another question, we're active on our forums pretty much daily. So just sign up for that. We'll answer questions there. Also on our Facebook group to search Barbell Medicine. Uh, and if none of those things work, go to some other fitness company because we can't be bothered. <laughs> yep. All right. First question. When bringing up behavior change about exercise or weight management, many clients or patients bring out negative self-talk, even if the clinician is trying to avoid shaming or negative language. This might be another deterrent for clinicians to address it. How do you handle when a client or patient starts beating themselves up pretty quickly or repeatedly when these topics come up? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that does happen. But I, to me, I don't actually view it, I guess, as a negative. I view it more as the person has some insight into what's been limiting them so far. So I don't ever want to focus on the negative self-talk per se, but it does give me, it gives me more opportunities to explore why they feel that way. So, for example, if somebody said, yeah, I just can't stick with the diet because I don't have enough willpower, for example, and I might ask them, well, why do, you, why do you feel that way? And try to get more information there. What specifically about, uh, you know, their dietary pattern that they haven't been able to adhere to makes them think they have low levels or lower than normal levels of willpower? What experiences specifically have they had? Uh, what sort of aspects of the dietary pattern were very hard for them? Usually people will start sharing that, which gives me more actionable stuff to talk about. 
sometimes you will have to like reassure them, you know, and 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 say, we don't think this is legitimately a willpower problem, but I am more curious as to why this has been your experience. If you could tell me a little bit more, that would be helpful. Um, I don't know. I can't think of a situation where somebody has been so negative where I'm like, we need to abort this immediately and pivot to something else. But rather, again, I think it just highlights additional opportunities to ask open-ended questions, get them to provide uh, a little bit more detail about what their experience has been so far, which ultimately I find very helpful for me in crafting what I'm going to have them do uh, or what we're going to work on together. Yeah, I definitely, I was thinking along similar lines when you were discussing the practice of motivational interviewing and how we go about these conversations. Establishing rapport and using these open-ended questions is so important. So anytime somebody brings up something like that that kind of catches our attention, the reflex should be, tell me more about that or what makes you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Let's dig into the, the backstory there. I actually, while you were talking, started thinking about this not so much through the lens of exercise and weight management, but having dealt with a lot of folks who have a ton of negative self-talk in the context of rehab. Back pain, for example, who have like feel like they're hopeless, this is never going to get better, they're never going to be able to do something again. That's something that I've probably dealt with a lot. Totally. And so exploring those feelings, exploring the prior experiences that led to that, because that's, again, as I mentioned during my lecture, that's where expectations come from. Expectations come from your prior experiences and things that you've been told. And so if they're very negative self-talk, very pessimistic, things like that, exploring where did this come from? And that might give launching off points for additional conversation. And then the other concept that I discussed in the rehab uh, lecture was this idea of expectation violation or expectancy violation, where somebody maybe has a very negative expectation about a particular activity, but if I can find a way to work with them and get them to do this activity without lighting up their pain or something like that, suddenly they're like, oh, maybe I can bend over without having a severe exacerbation of pain. And that might be the first little bit of a positive snowball to get away from that negative self-image, negative self-concept, things like that. And so that might be something that could generalize to other things. Maybe if somebody has negative self-talk about a particular aspect of their dietary adherence, maybe if we can get them you know, adherent to a particular dietary pattern from one day a week to two days a week, hey, that's a 100% improvement. Yep. Celebration, right? Among other kind of strategies like that. Violate the expectation and you might build some positive momentum and alter somebody's kind of self-concept. Yeah, I also think that if people are continually bringing up mostly negative experience or negative self-talk, uh, that does kind of clue you in that their self-efficacy at that point is they view it to be uh, particularly low. And so, yes, 10 out of 10 would recommend open-ended questions to explore that further. But also, particularly if you as the provider or uh, subject matter expert in this case are feeling like, wow, this is a lot of negativity. Uh, I'm not really sure where to go from there. Um, you can flip it and ask, uh, how about a time that you actually succeeded? You tell me about a single time and just to sort of uh, kind of balance out some of that negative uh, self-talk ne negative experience with the time where they were able to be successful. And again, pointing out so there clearly are things you can do that you do have control over. And so, again, trying to leverage that to give them a little bit of even if it's artificial self-efficacy at that point to move forward. But definitely would not recommend ignoring it or pivoting away. Definitely would explore it, uh, but maybe also with additional like positive uh, sort of element to begin with. Number two, what are some useful ways to handle conflicting information that patients or clients have picked up from other clinicians about resistance training or pain or literally anything else? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I have a formulaic answer for this. I, I think, because uh, this does happen legitimately all the time, uh, even if it's not formalized in like a patient uh, provider sort of situation, but even just in our DMs, somebody will send us something like, hey, what do you think about this? Or my doctor said this, and here's the proof that they they offered or whatever. Uh, I think first is want to give people the benefit of the doubt and generally be charitable 
about what they're trying to do or trying to say rather than go off and say, ah, that's, they're an idiot, you know, whatever. So I would avoid that because um, one, you don't know like what the context was by which this recommendation came up, even if it is wrong or you don't agree. So rather than kind of uh, uh, being inflammatory towards the other person, I kind of would just give them the benefit of the doubt that they were doing their best and move forward. If it is something that you vehemently disagree with, I think you can express that disagreement and offer, if the person's willing to look at it, proof for why you hold the beliefs that you do. I think it's important within that to sort of rate your level of confidence. And you could do it very simple, simple, uh, simply saying, I'm very confident that this is likely to be true, or I uh, think this is true, although I have a low level of confidence based on the existing evidence. Uh, and here's what I recommend you would do with that situation uh, in this situation. But I think the biggest problem we have is, is just people, it's kind of like infighting, right? People see something, they don't agree with it. And uh, instead of, I don't know, maybe directly addressing it, they attack the person and say, ah, oh, this person is just an idiot or whatever. And that, I don't know, helps anybody except for the person who's saying it to feel better about just dismissing it. So I don't know. I think, yeah, being charitable, uh, uh, coming from a place of understanding and then providing your kind of take on it with supporting evidence, probably much the best you can do. And the person can choose to inter uh, take that into consideration or not. Ultimately, if somebody is going to, you know, reject your uh, information, that's fine too. They can do that on their own accord. You know, this is going to be a scenario where the there are multiple aspects about the context that are really going to influence my answer and how I go about it. And and what I mean by that is, if I have a patient or a client who's coming to me and they have, you know, information that they've acquired from someplace else that I don't necessarily agree with. I may or I may not challenge that at all, depending on a few particular variables. The first is, why are they coming to me? Are they coming to me because they want another opinion on that particular thing? In which case, okay, you are interested in my opinion. I'm willing to give you my opinion and try to support it. If they're coming to me for another reason, and I just peripherally hear that this other person is recommending that I do this, I may disagree with that, but I may or may not immediately push on that because it matters whether or not that's relevant to the current situation. The other variable that would matter is what is that patient or client's relationship like with that person? So maybe if that patient or client has been seeing that other doctor for 50 years and they are wholeheartedly on the train with that person and believe everything they say, and then they come and talk to me, who am I to tell them, you know, that person's an idiot or to use the example that you said, right? So it matters. I have to first assess, you know, tell me where this came from. Tell me what that, you know, what's, how they've been helping you, what that experience has been like. And if they're like, oh my gosh, that's my favorite doctor in the world. I love working with them. I love everything they tell. It's all great. I'm like, okay, yeah. so, you know, who am I to tell you otherwise? That's fine. Even if I don't, you know, fully uh, agree with it. But if they want my opinion on that thing and they're not already wholeheartedly bought into another avenue, then I may not touch it. That may not be my role on that day until or unless they ask me about it, or if I think that they're being harmed by that person, then I might probe into it a little bit, but that's a gentle, ginger conversation that you have to do. Um, we spent a fair amount of time talking about behavior change this weekend. I talked in several of my groups when I got questions relating to beliefs and belief change. That's a, that's a whole thing. And we've talked about it at seminars before. I've made recommendations for, for example, the book, How Minds Change, fantastic book relating to belief change. And that's something that can kind of give uh, some context and not necessarily a script, but an approach when engaging with people about beliefs and deciding uh, how to and whether to uh, engage. So that's kind of like the, the context that I would use to decide how I'm going to handle this conflicting information. 
Um, do they really want my opinion? How important is it to morbidity, mortality, something like that? How, yeah. how, how high are the stakes? And that might also inform how much I push into something. Yeah, if the stakes are relatively low, someone's like, oh, cold plunge, super beneficial. I'm like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, the other thing is, uh, like, how many times do you think, we'll just eat a month, a month. Do you hear something that you vehemently disagree with, but you're like, yeah, that's probably okay. Oh, I mean, daily. Because the stakes are so low, right, that you're just like, eh, that's probably fine. And that's when you get to the sort of nuances in, like, programming, for example, uh, things that we might not actively support, but we're like, eh, that's probably fine, you know, in general. We're just, again, it just, the stakes are relatively low at that point. I don't know that we need to raise an argument because, again, the stakes are so low, and we don't know this person. They didn't actually ask our opinion. So when people, when you guys tag us and stuff, when you guys and you tag us and stuff on Instagram and we don't come in with the cavalry to like <laughs> respond, it's not because we dislike you. We just don't really know you or the person and we don't want to get in a meaningless argument that somebody else could just delete with one swipe of their finger. If they really cared about our opinion, they'd ask us. It's like when people make videos about bar- well, barbell medicine says this and blah, blah, blah. Like, why didn't you ask us to comment? We'd be, we're very open and available for commentary on most things. And the fact that you made a whole video or whatever about what barbell medicine thinks and says without contacting us tells more about you than us. Uh, There's but, been several of those that have also just been inaccurate totally. representations. That's but, what I'm yeah, saying. Then people do it. I was like, that's the world we live in. We're available. <laughs> you know, it's like when the press says, oh, so-and-so did this and like, weren't available for commentary. It's like, did you try? <laughs> just like, just a question. Anyway. All right, number three. Should non-competitive lifters always use assistive equipment like belts or straps? Would there be any risk of creating reliance on equipment like a weakened core activation in day-to-day physical tasks and potential for injury or any benefit to cycling on and off from using that kind of equipment like getting better grip strength from taking time away from using straps? You got a hot take on this? This is one of those things where I'm like, probably fine. <laughs> I don't have strong opinions on this. I do. I do think that we should at least challenge the idea that, like, using a belt, for example, will lead to any form of weakening whatsoever, because yeah. it won't do that. It will. Uh, you'll have similar to improved strength outcomes from the use of that. Um, certainly not a decrement or a decline in your strength. So I would not worry about reliance or weakening anything by using that. Yeah. And then as far as straps go, I mean, it kind of raises the question of like, okay, so I have to use, you know, maybe I have to use straps to deadlift like seven hundred pounds. Right. How often in my day-to-day life am I coming anywhere near that, right, to where that's going to be a factor, right? Mm-hmm. Just the ability that you're doing any lifting at all, even with straps, you're probably pl- you probably have plenty strong grip strength to do what you need to do in your day-to-day life. Most people who are meaningfully training in any way are not going to be, you know, struggling to uh, open up a, you know, a soda bottle or something like that. Totally. So I don't have super strong opinions about that. Yeah, I mean... With respect to belts, we did a whole article called The Science of Lifting Belts. We got a podcast on it where I literally viewed every available paper on using a belt in both the occupational setting and in resistance training setting. And I can say with a 9 out of 10 level of confidence that it does not look like there's any sort of decrement in the ability to produce force in the trunk or core or recruit those muscles in a uh, coordinated manner by people who use the belt a lot. If anything, a belt seems to improve the ability to do so. Uh, also, one of the ways the belt seems to work, at least a little bit, is by like placebo effect. Um, and so there's some sort of you know mental thing going on there. You could make maybe the argument that that placebo effect or whatever, if you used a belt all the time, might artificially suppress performance without the belt. But that would be limited to the gym situation, not in like a day-to-day life. Because again, 
you're thinking about heavy, heavy weights or whatever. Um, with the straps thing, I'm even less concerned because again, to use your example, if we had to use straps to deadlift 700 pounds, what amount of grip strength are we actually using to hold on to the straps? Still far in excess of maxing out a hand grip strength dynamometer as far as it correlates to you know, health trajectory or whatever. So I have minimal concerns over people overusing the belt or overusing straps. Uh, rather, if I look at the population, I think people are underusing belts and underusing straps because they're not working they're out. Because they're under training, they're not <laughs> exercising at all. So these are training tools. Uh, same with like knee sleeves, for example, or weightlifting shoes, squat shoes, or whatever. Uh, if you feel like you've become over-reliant on these and performance, absolute peak level performance isn't front of mind, and you can train in a similarly consistent manner, uh, tech, both technique-wise and programming-wise or whatever, without them, you could go for a training cycle uh, without them. I don't think it's going to be beneficial for any particular reason, but if you personally feel better about it, I'm happy to exploit that placebo effect as well. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this at our last uh, Q&A where we were asked some of these kind of detailed details around training, and I described my usual perspective on a lot of these kind of like training dilemmas. And the way I think about it is, is it likely that if I fast forward a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, that this decision is going to have a meaningful impact on where I end up at that time? And the vast majority of these things are not going to have a meaningful impact, right? The things that will have a meaningful impact is, am I training consistently? Am I doing the movements that I want to get better at? Am I training in reasonable intensity ranges with a reasonable dose of volume? Not, am I doing sets of four or am I doing sets of five? Am I doing training to RPE seven or am I training to RPE eight? Those things a year from now, two years from now, unlikely, it's not like my progress is going to have diverged substantially as a result of those. Did I, did I take a couple weeks or a couple months or whatever away from using straps or a belt or not? Unlikely to make massive, meaningful changes. Now, if that's not the time scale that you care about, then, you know, maybe things are different, right? If the time scale that you're focusing on is like within the next week because you have a meet or something like that, then maybe that calculus changes for certain things. But that's generally how I think about whenever somebody's faced with this kind of a training decision or dilemma, how much is this going to matter like a year from now? Which is also a good way to think about like everything else in life. <laughs> well, with, with the belt thing, because people will say, well, do I need a belt? Do I have to have a belt? Should I use a belt? And it's like you could live a full and complete life without a weightlifting belt, but it's going to let you lift more weight. And so if that's important to you, the absolute level of performance, belt can be super useful. Uh, same with straps. People are like, oh, do I need to have straps? It's like, well, they can be useful if your hands get torn up from lifting, for example, or in situations where your grip strength has been diminished for whatever reason. I use straps a few times when I've hurt my hand and I otherwise couldn't lift, and so I use the straps then. Or for higher repetition sets uh, where my grip strength would be a limiting factor, but that's not the intent of the training at that time. Um, and so they're just tools, right? I just don't see a negative to using them very frequently, again, outside of very uh, high-level performance sort of considerations, like a meet's coming up. I haven't touched straps, for example, in about four weeks, only because I'm going to a meet and I can't use straps. But I have used my belt on most exercises because I can use the belt at the meet. Um, I don't know. How many, work, how many exercises per week do you think you use your belt on? All of them? 50% of them? 25% of them? No, only the main lifts and close variations of them. Obviously, yeah. like not any of my accessory work or anything like that. So. I, I think all but two or three of my lifts I'm doing right now, I've used a belt on because the weight on the bar right now is the most important thing for what I'm doing. But this training cycle afterwards, I probably won't use a belt for three or four weeks. Not because I think there's a benefit. 
I just don't want to use it. Stuffing this into that small belt is not particularly comfortable. And so if I can avoid that, I'm going to. All right. Assuming they're amenable to the task, do you think that counting calories or macros gives the average person a better relationship to their body's natural any balance, uh, energy balance, uh, satiety signals, or a worse one? Do you think it's unhealthy to never be able to or be interested in stopping or taking a break from tracking? Okay, so the first one is, do you think that counting calories or macros gives the average person a better relationship to their body's natural sort of satiety signals? Uh, no, in general, uh, because if you're using that sort of way of uh, quantity control, then effectively you're going to eat through any sort of satiety signal because that's what you're supposed to eat, right? That's the kind of purpose of having macros, calories, rather than sort of responding to natural uh, sort of satiety cues. I think it gives people better perspective on what they're actually eating uh, energy-wise. So in general, people who have never tracked, never measured anything, and they look at a plate, uh, food on a plate or something, and they're like, oh, that's probably 400 calories. And then they measured out, actually, it was 780 calories. That can be useful to sort of, uh, for that, also for portion size sort of control, maybe that would be useful. But as far as like responding more favorably to sort of satiety signals or appetite signals, I think that's relatively unlikely. Um, the second question was, do you think it's unhealthy to never be able to stop or take a break from tracking? Yes, I do. Um, mainly not because the, the strategy of using calories or macros isn't useful and some people prefer it. Uh, I just think that this perseveration over, I must hit my numbers, I must hit these calorie targets, uh, otherwise bad things are going to happen. That's a lot of like food noise dietary pattern noise, uh, it takes up a lot of mental energy. I think that if people are using it, if they want to use it a few times a week, every week until the end of time, that seems fine. But the idea to not have a meal where they're not constantly concerned with the quantity of what they're eating probably doesn't, or probably isn't compatible with a, you know, normal sort of life without, again, all this sort of uh, uh, food noise around you. And so it, does, is it an eating disorder at that point? Is it uh, restricted eating at that point? I don't know. I probably wouldn't meta, you know, pathologize it or medicalize it. But I also think that people should have more freedom, sort of, particularly if the stakes are low. You're not prepping for a bodybuilding show, figure show. You're not, you don't have to make weight for a particular meet or something. It's just your day-to-day -day life. My thought is if you get 80%, 90% of it pretty much right, the other 10%, you can kind of do whatever you want. And... Um, the whole thing is this, this energy balance is struck over a much longer period of time. We're not talking day-to-day -day variations in energy balance, so how, much, how many calories came in versus came out. We're thinking more weeks, actually more so months and stuff like that. So a handful of free meals or meals you don't track or whatever ultimately going to make up such a small percentage of your total you know, energy balance over the course of a few months that I think it's fine to take a break. Um, I just think I'm going to DSM this and see what Leah thinks. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be interested in your, your opinion, Leah. So, you know, we, have, we talked about the role of the food environment that surrounds us and how that can impact both, con you know, consciously and subconsciously our food behaviors, eating behaviors, things like that. And because the food environment is unlikely to be substantially changed due to the political aspect of things, policy level, regulation, things like that, we need tools to fight back in some way against the food environment, right? This is one example of a tool that somebody might use to manage their energy intake in the face of this caloric abundance that we have, right? There are other tools, other lifestyle methods, other self-monitoring methods, 
the anti-obesity medications are another tool, surgeries, various tools to fight against this food environment. The idea that it is unhealthy to never be able to stop tracking, I think there's some probably some some caveats there. Insofar as you characterize it as like, is it an eating disorder? And I'm what I meant, what I mean when I say going down the DSM route, most things, this is like the psychiatric manual for diagnosing things that are disorders or not. Almost pretty much every single one of them, to be a disorder, it has to cause the person distress. Mm-hmm. Right? And so sounds like I got approval over there. All right. So the idea is that if somebody who their preferred method of choice is calorie tracking, macro tracking, that helps them stay in whatever you know, form they want, they want to be, and they are extremely comfortable, habitual doing it, they're like, I have no problem doing that, very comfortable, does not cause them any problem, they don't stress out about it, they're not distressed about it, I don't know that I have a particularly strong opinion about that being unhealthy, whatever that means. On the other hand, which is unfortunately like a fair number of people who do this long-term every day, is it does end up causing some, st- some stress, some neurosis, some panic, some food anxiety, stuff like that. And that's a situation where it's like, yeah, I feel like your, your quality of life, health, stress levels could probably be improved if we didn't have to track every day all the time. And we may need to bring in other tools to do that. And there are many of them, many other strategies. And one of the most common ones nowadays that of course everyone's talking about are some of the medications that we have available that one of the most common reported effects of this is, wow, my brain is quiet now. It shuts off that so-called food noise. The person is not constantly thinking of their next meal or while they're eating, how much they're going to eat or, you know, when they need to stop or all that sort of stuff. It just like turns that off. So if it turns that off, you're not distressed over it. You don't have to track the calories anymore. Quality of life as evidenced by every patient that I've ever talked to who's, who's gone through this is substantially improved. So I think my concern over this as a healthy or unhealthy kind of strategy really hinges on that distress aspect. If it is something that causes you distress, I would prefer that we find a better strategy, recognizing that the food environment ain't changing unless you move to someplace with uh, active famine, in which case, you know, you'll be okay. You can stay lean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's not, that's not the way that we would prefer to do this. So that's my, that's my thought. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one. Recent studies uh, have claimed that protein is not as satiating as most of the fitness world claims. Multiple studies have pointed to the idea that there's a pretty neutral effect when increasing protein intake prior to a meal and resulting in no changes in satiety. Any comments? Yeah. No, I, uh, there's some nuance here with that. And we did, a, I think it was part of our research review uh, three or four ones ago with Kevin Hall's paper on uh, basically processed versus unprocessed foods and some of them having higher or lower levels of protein. And so it does seem like in an unprocessed, relatively unprocessed or minimally processed dietary pattern, that increasing protein in and of itself doesn't seem to be very uh, satiating or increasing feelings of fullness. Uh, although that relationship does seem to be preserved in more processed diets, ultra-processed foods. And to me, that kind of makes sense now that I say it out loud and think about it. It's that if you're eating a minimally processed dietary pattern, the, all the foods are relatively satiating and none of them are really appetite uh, promoting because they're not like super tasty combination of all the things that light up our reward centers, added sugar, added sodium, added fats. They tend to not have those sort of things to also tend to have a high water content. And so in a highly processed diet, uh, adding some more protein to the mix does seem to be a little satiating, but again, that can be overwhelmed by the amount of the other stuff that's in there. So yeah, I don't think protein is terribly, terribly satiating in and of itself. Uh, although in the typical standard American diet, it could be a lever to pull if somebody cannot get away from a number of the processed or ultra-processed foods. I feel like you agree? Agree. I have La- other thoughts. 
Well, what about that paper we did the research review on with the uh, pre-meal dosing of protein in individuals with type 2 diabetes? Showed that their, fat, their blood sugar responses were much, much more improved. A1Cs ended up lowering more significantly just a dose of protein beforehand. Yeah. They didn't eat any less. That's what I thought initially. I was like, yo, they gave these people whey protein before they ate a meal. And I thought, oh, maybe it's filling. They ate less food. And so that's why their blood sugar excursions were more subdued. And that's why their A1C levels improved later on. Turns out they ate about the same. But protein in and of itself seemed to have some unique effects on blood sugar. And so then I asked Austin, I was like, you're going to give your individual with type 2 diabetes some whey protein? And he's like, whey RX, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Do you approach sensations like numbness or tingling the same way that you approach pain? Uh... So this is, I thought, an interesting one. The answer is, for the most part, kind of yes. But I have to reiterate or clarify how I approach pain. The first aspect of approaching pain is assessing for potentially ominous or dangerous underlying causes of said pain, right? So somebody comes in with, you know, chest pain. I'm not going to say, you know, like I said, pain's all in your head. Go about, go about your day. So there is the upfront idea of screening out 
you know, underlying medical conditions that could be potentially ominous, dangerous, need specific treatment. That's how we would approach pain in any particular area of the body. And then from there, if nothing can be identified, providing some reassurance, having more conversations about the impact it's having on the person's life, coping strategies, potentially symptom modification, uh, you know, uh, strategies, things like that are totally fine. And I would do the same thing if it came to numbness and tingling. Numbness and tingling can happen uh, for no clear reason. It can happen for various like systemic metabolic reasons can lead to numbness and tingling like all over the place. You can have new onset numbness and tingling in a particular area. And so all of these things are gonna lead me to think about different things and assess for different things. Uh, I think last year I learned about a syndrome that I had never heard of before called numb chin syndrome, which is something where you have numbness in a branch of the mandibular nerve okay. and it can be a sign of uh, malignancy. Cancers can do that, infiltrating that distribution. So that's something that is rare, but it's like, I learned that and I'm like, I will not miss this. Somebody has a numb chin instead, I'm gonna be like, oh, that doesn't sound like anything serious. You can go about your day. Now I'm gonna be like, oh, <laughs> worry. That's an example of what I'm getting at, of wanting to identify potentially dangerous things. There are other kinds of syndromes of numbness and tingling that could be examples of neuropathy. Neuropathy is this giant umbrella term, but it can happen from demyelinating disease or toxins or various other things. And so those are gonna be what I ask about, investigate, think. And if I end up coming up empty-handed, I can't find a clear explanation for this, um, then that's a situation where I would approach it similarly. Reassurance, how's it impacting your life? Are there symptom modification strategies that we can use? And kind of going from there. But all these symptoms, it's like, yeah, I wanna make sure it's nothing bad first, right? That doesn't mean though, like in the context of pain and back pain, we didn't send everybody with back pain for an MRI. There are other ways to get it to assess that risk to make those kind of decisions before we commit to something like that. In the same way, somebody who has numbness and tingling, not all of them need an MRI or an EMG or a nerve conduction study or something like that. It's case by case, and that's why you should consult with somebody who knows what they're doing to try to figure this out. Yeah. I think in the context of training, you know, if somebody has numbness and tingling for four seconds after a set, I'm pretty much like, yeah, I don't know what that is, but I'm also not concerned about it. But if somebody has uh, developing this insidious numbness and tingling that persists even after they're done in the gym, then assuming I don't get any other red flag sort of signs and symptoms that, you know, this could be something, nothing to do with training, just being sort of identified by training, then I would start handling it very this, much the same way we handle pain. Yeah. It's apparently a, uh, we've outkicked our coverage and we're getting some sort of signs and symptoms of that with the numbness and tingling. Yeah, just like any other subjective symptom, there are gonna be biological, psychosocial variables that impact the person's experience of that symptom, just like any other subjective symptom. And we wanna address all of them, but of course not focus on psychology and miss something potentially ominous uh, biologically. When's the last time you had a little numbness tingling in training? Uh, I don't know, maybe like on an overhead press, I might might have felt a little shoot of some numbness down an arm or something for a second and it went away, nothing serious. Or like in my hands when I've had really tight straps for a high rep set or something like that. When we were in LA, I, I told you this, I was like, my hands hurt. I had like numbness and tingling in my hands. Uh, I just pulled a really heavy deadlift. I attributed it to a bent bar that I had to like death lock in there in a weird position. And I was just like, ah, maybe just overexerted the old hands here. Turns out the gym I go to, the J hooks, when you load the bar up with a heavy enough weight, it won't roll anymore. And so you try to get under it, it won't move. And I'm like bending my hands in this really weird position just to unrack it. And I was like yeah. doing this weird stuff with my hands. Like a compressive thing at your wrist. So I bought some new J hooks okay. and I brought them in. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. Uh, given the extremely unregulated scope of a personal trainer, Oh Can you explain what your ideal scope of practice for them would look like? Okay, hold on. First question. Do you think 
that we should have a larger regulatory body over personal trainers in the United States? That is a, that is a, a hot take, isn't it? Uh-huh. I'll have him do the hot take first. <laughs> I'll save the day. So um, yes, yes or no question, Dr. Baraki? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I feel super strongly that it needs to be like really rigidly regulated, to yeah. be honest, because I think there's, you know, fitness trainer can, man, can be so many different things yes. um, that how are you going to have a regulatory body that encompasses like all the different potential ways that somebody could pursue fitness? Yeah. I don't know. I, w- I would agree with that. And further, I would have problems with deciding who is in charge of the regulatory body. My fear would be additional regulation, somebody like NASM or ACSM takes control and it's like, come on guys, you even lift? You know, like, <laughs> no offense to anybody out there who's involved with that. They're, I'm sure they're great people. So first, I don't think we need more regulation. I do think it is kind of the wild, wild west as far as personal training goes as a scope, but that's almost a feature of that uh, sort of uh, uh, occupation because it can encompass so many different things. Are we talking about, you know, like a running coach, for example, or a group fitness instructor at a, you know, in a spin class? Like, it's, it's all that stuff. Uh, if I had to kind of outline a scope for somebody who's working with people in a gym-type uh, setting, um, I would say that they should be knowledgeable on programming. They should be able to, you know, do exercise prescription. They should be able to do some sort of behavior change uh, counseling with respect to exercise participation and adherence. They should uh, be able to coach the movements that they're prescribing to people, or at least have some sort of referral base to do that in a way. Uh, And then they should have general nutrition knowledge. And in most states in the United States, there are no real rules and regulations about what they can't, what personal trainers can and can't do. In some states, they put uh, large, large barriers and constraints on what uh, non-registered dietitians can communicate as far as the nutrition uh, recommendations go. State of California is pretty much wide open, for example, but uh, like North Carolina is on lockdown. You can't really talk about nutrition unless you're a registered dietitian. Or, or a physician, I think, too. Or right? a physician, yeah. yeah. So there's some, uh, there's differences there. But, you know, I think I'd almost uh, advise and advocate for less restriction and having more trainers. And here's my thought process. We have more trainers. We have more people in the trenches, all right? We have more opportunity for people to get some directed guidance. And people are like, well, what if they're bad? What if they're bad trainers? Bad trainers. They can't coach the lifts to a particular standard that we're holding people to. I don't care. The injury risk for exercise, unsupervised, is relatively low anyway. So unless we see there's all these people out there with nefarious intent trying to hurt people, I, don't, I think that's unlikely to happen. It may not be the best sort of technique coaching, the best programming, or the best nutrition advice, but I do think giving people some contact with a professional in their eyes can help them on their fitness journey. Um, you know what you just described? What's that? The CrossFit model. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah. I don't have any problem with, people are like, well, you guys must hate CrossFit. Yeah. I'm like, no, are you kidding? We wouldn't be here if it weren't for CrossFit. Cro- Seriously. Surrounded by rogue equipment in this totally. very well outfitted Cro- gym. CrossFit's one of the best things that's ever happened to resistance training, no matter what kind of flavor you prefer. Before CrossFit, I outfitted a gym. You know how, how this process went? You looked through a magazine, <laughs> a mail order magazine, and you would highlight stuff or check mark or whatever. You'd send in a money order in an envelope. You would wait anywhere between four to eight weeks and hope that something would turn up on your door and it wasn't all damaged, right? <laughs> and, that's if, and that's if you were lucky. Now I can get like next day shipping on a whole gym setup if I wanted to, right? Or if we travel abroad, there are strength, focused gyms everywhere on the planet pretty much Um, and by the way so many other people now are into this stuff when i started this is you know 
while CrossFit was maybe six or seven years old at the time, um, there were, you know, 1,800 or, or uh, 1,800 or 2,500 members in the USAPL, United States of America Powerlifting Federation. Now there's close to 40,000. You think that's because USAPL is doing a smash-up job with marketing and event promotion? No. People are lifting weights in CrossFit boxes. like, this is cool. And we're like, we're trying to tell you that <laughs> this whole time. So, yeah, I think having more, you know, boots on the ground, people in the trenches who are trying to help, even if the help isn't up to the barbell medicine standard. Well, fine. That's fine. But I think the people uh, who are effective communicators are likely to thrive in the space. And so we're going to get more uh, people who can help more people. And that's kind of where we're going here. Yeah, I think I agree with all the um, kind of uh, skills that you outlined that would be important. The only thing I would add, and this I, I think about this from the through the lens of physical therapy training, because yeah. they're trained to do physical therapy, but they're also trained aggressively up front to screen things out that they shouldn't be touching and refer accordingly. And I think that trainers should be able to do something similar. If somebody comes in and they're like, oh, I need to be able to identify reasons or features why this person should probably not train and refer accordingly. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a useful skill too. Yeah, if you, t- if you put a little, a little dose of, uh, non, of, of good language around pain and injury, we would, uh, yeah. we'd be happy. We're best friends. Yeah, right. Yeah. In your experience, I thought this was an interesting one to, oh boy. to see what you think. Oh boy. In your experience as a coach, what would you estimate as a, quote, minimum Minimum clinically significant difference, which we'll, we can explain what that means, would be in terms of a percent uh, one RM increase, where someone could say with confidence that they actually got stronger and their program worked. Oh sure. Oh, you want to make stuff up? You want to try to describe what that is for people? Okay, yeah. So this MCID minimum clinically important difference is effectively the difference between two whatever variables of whatever that are large enough for you to say, yeah, this is definitely different. It's not due to measurement error. Not due to. Yeah, and it matters, not due to like biological variation, so te- doing the same test on the same person at a different time of the day, for example, or a problem with the test itself. Yeah, so, so there's variation in strength performance day to day. If we tested your one rep max 10 days in a row, obviously, you know, we're going to get some noise. That number is going to bounce around a little bit. So what degree of difference would you need to see to be confident that like, yeah, this isn't just noise. Somebody just happened to have a good day or a bad day, but rather like they actually responded to their program and got stronger. Yeah. This is a very difficult thing to even make up an answer to. But. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's some data on other sports performance where they have monitored it over a long period of time and they kind of get these upper and lower constraints. So like a floor and a ceiling on somebody's base level of performance and people kind of oscillate between there. Some days are good days, some days are worse days, but on average, this is their baseline of performance. The idea with programming, exercise, training for a sport or whatever is that you raise the floor and your average performance goes up over time. And ideally then your ceiling goes up as well. In strength training, there hasn't been any really good data looking at like what is, what's the floor, what's the ceiling on average for folks. But in my experience, I'm thinking somewhere in that minus, you know, five to 8% range to plus five to 8%. That's kind of the boundaries. And if you just want to round it up to 10 and 10, I'd be fine. So whatever your sort of average level of performance is for a given rep range, I think 10% under that's well within normal and 10% above that's also within normal. So it's kind of like if somebody had an 11 or 12% increase in their performance, I'd say, hmm, I'd be pretty confident right now that your average has gone up and this isn't just a fluke based on, ah, you had a particularly good day or before when we tested it last time was a particularly bad day. And so in the context of me, I'm now six days out from a powerlifting meet, right? I have numbers that I've hit now recently in training. I have a general sense, or as my grandma would say, gestalt of what my strength levels are. But in order for me to set a PR at the meet, I need to have a great day. It can't be an average day. 
I have to have a great day. And so I hope that on Saturday, when I show back up here next weekend, that I'm having a great day for my squat and a great day for my bench press and a great day for my deadlift and nothing else goes wrong and I'm able to finally PR my total after nine years of working at it. Uh, but yeah, I think somewhere above, <laughs> not that I'm upset about it or anything, not that it's been a long journey or anything, uh, but yeah, I'm thinking somewhere in that 10% range. Uh, similarly, a 10% drop in performance that persists, now I start wondering, what's going on? Am I, is the training dose or formulation significantly in, uh, now inappropriate for the person um, or something going out uh, outside the gym that has made now this training inappropriate for the person? So that's kind of like my the bumpers, if you will. Yeah, I viewed it through the similar lens of what's the usual fluctuation that I've experienced in my own training. And I definitely, I don't bat an eye at anything variation in that five to 8% range. 10%, I'm like, mm, this kind of sucks. It's not like it's unenjoyable. It's not enjoyable. It's unenjoyable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can because I can remember putting some numbers to this, uh, and we sometimes talk about this when we're talking about our training. And like this was a I don't know a, a year or so ago, and I had a day where I was like, I had been deadlifting in like the 300 kilo range. So I deadlifted like 660 the week before, and I tell, deadlifted 600 that day, and I'm like, that just feels like a big drop. And then I was like, I did the math. I'm like, that's oh, 10. percent Yeah. I guess this sometimes happens. Yeah. I don't love that feeling, but that's what happened that day. So yeah, the five to eight percent is like, don't even think about that. That's just noise. 10%'s like, mm, I don't love this. I don't think I'm weaker. I think I'm having a bad day. Much more than that is usually like I've had an exceptionally bad day uh, or something really bad happened in my That's life or something like that. Um, and, and similarly on the up end, right? Five to 8% up, I'm like, oh, cool. That's fine. 10% up, I'm like, ooh, this is a notably good day. Anything beyond that, I'm like, mm, something weird. Some, the stars really aligned. This is probably going to happen like once a year for me or something like that. Let me just like take the PR while I can today. Yeah. Then. <laughs> I was wondering if you switched it. You're like, all right, 10% down, that's definitely bad. Uh, 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 or no, that's within like normal limits or whatever. Oh, 10%, but 10 up, you're, you're like, oh, it's a PR. I must be stronger today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like, think that'd be a very adaptive way to, to view this. Yeah, so. outside of that 10% margin, I feel like it's reasonable. Yeah. But so, disclaimer on YouTube, that's, we just made that up. <laughs> yeah. All right, last couple of questions. Uh, does training under high-stress environments lead to greater adaptations? For example, would running in a humid environment make you a faster runner? Oh, um, it would make you a faster runner in a humid environment. A humid environment. Yeah, the adaptations being specific, but as far as like, could you take that and translate it to a drier environment and be faster? That's kind of analogous to the train high, like train at altitude or whatever, and then come down to sea level and run your race. I, I interpreted this through the lens of like what it felt like to train in swimming yeah. and swimming in a hot pool the worst yeah, and then you'd always race in like a very cold pool and racing in a cold pool was amazing yeah. uh, but training in a hot pool which i had to do for certain periods of my life was and there, i do not feel like maybe better <laughs> I, I think there's elements of this that are true right particularly as they per, uh, go to like different physiological adaptations that you would need to perform highly in that sport so yeah Again, anything that requires you to be better at dissipating heat, for example, or increases like red blood cell counts, again, training at altitude, that could be useful. But there's a limit to this. Like, okay, I need you to do a long division problem before you do this one RM squat attempt. It's like, well, we added stress to this, but I don't, I don't know that this is going to have any additional benefit. It's more stressful. Or like you ask somebody like... You want to mention that there's a coach who actually did yeah, that? Yeah, you got to answer a riddle before was, you squat this thing. people you know? do math problems before they lift it. I don't remember what the thought process was there. But. Yeah, you got to fill out this... You got to do a <laughs> Sudoku puzzle before you go do this deadlift set. You know, I don't think... I, I, I don't, wouldn't predict that that would have a, a large impact on additional strength gain, but it would likely train you to do some sort of cognitive task and then lift something. And if that's your goal, like, great. 
Uh, I could see a use for doing that if somebody had like lift anxiety, like you know they they get up to a top set and they're like, take I don't know their what brain to do. someplace else. Yeah, exactly. It's like all right, you know, <laughs> read the Pledge of Allegiance or something, and then you can go lift. You know. All right. Um, with regards to programming, what factors do you consider when deciding on the type of split you prescribe, like full body, upper, lower, uh, push pull legs, etc.? Are there any generalization generalizations you can share regarding preferences for various splits for various training goals? You want to start? You want me, I mean, what? Sure, yeah. Uh, so yeah. the main factors that I consider on deciding the way that I prescribe any variable in training is based on the person and what they want to do. All those things that I listed in my lecture earlier. What's their prior experience with exercise, which informs their current fitness level? What are their preferences? What are their limitations? What are their goals? What equipment and tools and resources do they have access to? How much time do they have available to train? And then once I get, have gathered all that information, I would only explicitly prescribe one of these splits over another if they stated an explicit preference for it. Otherwise, our general bias is towards more so full-body type training on most of the sessions that somebody's going to do, and then iteratively changing it over time only if needed based on their preferences and based on their training response. So some people, I've biased things you know, to where they do a big, giant squat, bench, deadlift day beginning of the week, and then they have a couple light accessory sessions where they don't even touch a barbell or something like that. And I would only evolve to, to that over time based on how they responded and their preferences and things like that. Other people where they like to distribute the main lifts more throughout the week. Some people one lift a day, some people, you know, some people bench six days a week, something like that. So all that is going to vary based on the person, their needs, their preferences, stuff like that. Yeah. I tend to bias more towards like at my default program is mostly full body stuff, particularly with the ones that have a, of a high level of priority towards the beginning of the week, because I think fatigue builds up over the week. Right. So I prefer people do them for, you know, fresher, uh, with less fatigue, more chutzpah, as uh, my grandmother would say. Um, and then similar to Austin, if somebody has a clear preference, like I would just want an upper-lower day, I want to do an upper-lower split, I'm like, we can accommodate that. Or if they want a push-pull-leg split, I'm like, we can accommodate that. And I think there's very little to lose. Part of it's definitely our own experience, like how we've training, and uh, definitely when we have a strength bias, we're like, all right, we're training movements. And so if we can train a squat pattern, for example, a press pattern, for example, and a hinge pattern. It's like, cool, those are three of the main movements that we're trying to train. We're unlikely to suffer from a ton of fatigue by doing a squat pattern, a squat pattern, a squat pattern, back to back to back. For a hypertrophy type setting, like our bodybuilding templates, for example, there's definitely lower body focused days and they go quad dominant, hamstring dominant, quad dominant, hamstring dominant, but it's a leg day, if you will. And the upper body days are more press, or push oriented pull push pull they kind of alternate back and forth and again it's just a stylistic choice right we are programming artists and we're you know kind of uh that's our canvas is an excel spreadsheet that gets translated into an app um so yeah i kind of start with the full body stuff but i can't accommodate almost any of this stuff uh i think when i would start defaulting towards maybe just a single body part for example or a body part split is when time constraints start becoming an issue because then it's like all right you squat that's going to take up take up a significant amount of time but then after that if we move right to leg press you don't really need to warm up that much for it you're already kind of in that movement pattern and you finish up with like leg extensions leg curls like boom you could be in and out 45 minutes uh compared to if you had to squat bench press then do a deadlift variation for example so i think from a training adaptation standpoint it's likely all a wash outside of personal preferences and different ways to manage fatigue throughout the week um so yeah you can see every type of that of like different body part splits throughout our templates, for example. So we're just open to changing it. But I think for our own devices, we're like, 
I kind of want to do a squat, a push, and a pull on most days of the week. And we don't. And that's part of that is also an artifact of that we do not fry ourselves on any particular movement because we don't train, you know, most of most things to failure because we think we can get most of the adaptations not at failure. And so we don't need a giant, you know, stretch of the week to recover a particular body part or something like yeah. that, right? And then the last thing I'll add is that rem re remember that the idea of a week is made up. Right. And yeah, so Gregorian everybody by default true. <laughs> programs things on a week to week basis. But I have had plenty of people who I stretch their programming out and we program on a longer or a shorter kind of like repeating cycle, so to speak. I've had people who've deadlifted once every, you know, X number of days. That's not necessarily on this rigid weekly schedule. So, you know, I, I, recognizing that that's like an assumption that we all have is like this week is a real thing. It's not a real thing. It's all made up. <laughs> Gregorian calendar. Yeah. It's BS. Last question. All right. Any indication for how to change how to train people with insulin resistance beyond perhaps more healthful weight loss initially? Do, would you train anybody differently who had established insulin resistance compared to not? I mean, no. Yeah, me neither. Nope. Yeah, I mean, but I think you can expand upon this question. Like pr most medical diagnoses outside of an absolute or relative contraindication that just means like you shouldn't do exercise do not require unique exercise considerations that you wouldn't otherwise make for an individual. Meaning like, what can you do right now? What's your current level of fitness? What do you have access to? And what do you want to do? It's pretty much all the same. We want everybody who's otherwise, who is able to, to lift weights a couple times a week, uh, to hit all the major muscle groups of the body in a rep range of three to 20 reps, getting somewhere close to failure, do that a few times. And we want everybody to do about 150 minutes per week of conditioning, um, you know, active on most days, RP five to six, somewhere in there, those exercise guidelines we put in your, in your handouts. Um, and I, outside of, again, a, this contraindication to participating in exercise, that includes all medical diagnoses that somebody would have. And what you would do on an individual basis if somebody said, I can't squat right now, well, you, okay, and you're not going to squat, but you're going to do something for the lower body. Maybe it's a leg press. Maybe it's a box squat. You know, maybe it's a, you start with leg extension, something. You're still going to try to train that muscle group somehow, but it's not like a, the diagnosis in this case. Insulin resistance clues me in to say, ooh, yeah. we need blood flow restriction training only, and then they all, can only do interval work for their conditioning because we know that works better. In general, the training adaptations, while specific to how you train, from a health perspective, are most related to training volume, so how much they are doing. So my goal, pretty, the majority of the time, is to get the person to be as active as I can without, again, outkicking their coverage. Yeah, this is definitely not a, there, there are certainly medical conditions that would alter how I might have to program for somebody insofar as it might lead to a limitation in their ability to participate, for example, right? Somebody with like, end stage COPD, and I'm like, yeah, let's crank this up to like 150 minute, minutes a week of aerobic training. That might be a challenge. Might take a little bit of time to work up to. Totally. They more likely will not <laughs> get up to that, um, in that in that state of health. But this is one where the reason I mention it is because there, if you go trawling the pub, pub meds, you'll find research on, oh, high intensity training is uniquely beneficial for insulin resistance or you know, resistance training is uniquely beneficial. It's like, we've already said we want you guys to do all of this stuff. Yep. And so if I could take a cohort of people with insulin resistance and randomize them to train meeting or exceeding the physical activity guidelines versus exclusively following a, what you could argue is a more evidence-based thing of like high intensity interval stuff, and then appropriately manage their insulin resistance in, in other ways as well, medically, dietarily, et cetera. And then you look at how they do five years later, I'm not expecting a huge difference in these, in these outcomes, yeah. right? Outside of volume 
based considerations. Yeah. So that's kind of the main main factor that I would think about there. And you would do that though with any person who came to you for coaching, you would whatever restrictions that they have based on their current presentation, you would make adjustments unique to them. Yep. Even if they didn't have the diagnosis. Correct. Yeah. All right, we did it guys. Hey guys, thank you so much for coming to our seminar. I really appreciate it, thanks. All right, that's a wrap on episode 245. Again, that was our Q&A from our most recent two-day health and performance seminar in Sacramento, California at Untamed Strength. Shout out to Alan Thrall for hosting us. Really appreciate it. The gym is great in the Sacramento area. Definitely try to drop in. And we'd love to see you at one of our upcoming live in-person seminars. Again, we'll be in Australia in January. It looks like we're going to Europe sometime in the spring. And then we'll have some domestic sites coming up as well. Um, Check the website for more information on that. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.